We believe, teach, and confess that in time of persecution, when a plain and steadfast confession is required of us, we should not yield to the enemies in regard to such adiaphora. As the Apostle has written, Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Also 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, etc. For what concord hath light with darkness? Formula of Concord, Epitome 10. Hello everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about, well, how do we want to put this, Zell, to talk about Adiaphora, to talk about the epitome, the solid declaration, and really the thrust of this would be to kind of talk about Adiaphora and government, if the two intersect at all. But before that, how's fall on the prairie? Fall on the prairie is wonderful. Things are nice and cool, and the the leaves are turning a beautiful color of yellow. I mean, it really is a lovely time to be in North Dakota right now, and I am enjoying every minute of it. Is are things as as nice in Illinois? Or yeah, very cool. Kind of down in the fifties. Although they tell me it's going to be back in the eighties next week, so we'll we'll find out. Uh... <laughs> You might be able to hear as we record uh, the sound of large trucks going by because harvest is underway. So uh, that's the, the road in front of the parsonage is is very, very busy right now. The wind is blowing, but that's nothing new out here. But the weather is getting cooler. Like I said, supposed to come back up next week, but we'll see. I would remind people, by the way, that now is the time of the year where the new almanacs are coming out. So please be <laughs> sure to buy your almanac of choice very soon, available at local farm stores or via post, uh, depending on how you like to, to order your stuff. Well, now, have you started putting together your corn shocks yet? Or No, actually, I've not yet. It's about time, though, to go cut cut the stalks and uh, make a fodder shock, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it will be time. Got to really lash them down good here, though, or they will blow away. <laughs> I know that feeling, trust me. Living here up in, in North Dakota, wind is an ever-constant companion. Today is nice and calm, but some days it's just crazy. So I, I feel you on the wind front anyway. Right. One day we'll live in a place with mountains and trees, perhaps. Lord willing, who knows? Um, <laughs> but I just go and sit under my gourd. You know how it is. Well, is that is that we going to be Word Fitly or we going to be your family? Because I'm well, you know, to... I will eventually move. Uh, Word Fitly will either be canceled or have to move to a mountain compound eventually. It's true. Uh, you understand. <laughs> uh, the, the question is: Will we will we be canceled by the government, Lutherans, or you know, will the Presbyterians just create a, a hostile denial of service attack? We don't know. We don't know yet. So it'll all be good. Right. So anyway, today's discussion is going to be a little bit interesting. Um, we're going to talk about adiaphora, and for a lot of Lutherans, this word's going to be familiar. Perhaps for our non-Lutheran listeners, it won't be. And this is going to be kind of a, a bit of an inside baseball one, because we're going to be looking at the formula of Concord quite a bit. And this comes from a listener question that we received. So Zellin, first, give us a good definition of adiaphora and the context in which it's used, and then we'll, then we'll talk a little bit about the question. Okay. Uh, probably the most basic definition of adiaphora is something which is neither commanded nor forbidden in the Scriptures, something that God has not specifically said one way or the other that you can or can't do it. Uh, and typically, historically, and we'll talk about this a little bit, this question was applied to worship matters, it was applied to liturgical matters, and we'll talk about kind of the background of where that all comes in. But our question for today, and maybe we want to just have this out in front just so that we kind of have it, you know, right there, is that is there any kind of secular application to this question as well? And uh, the question comes from, like I say, one of our listeners, and he asks that, you know, is there a real-time application with regard to government interference? Is this in something which would apply in those kinds of cases? Uh, and it's a question I find actually rather interesting because I think we as Lutherans typically think of adiaphora purely in liturgical terms. But as I think we'll see, I think a good case can be made for kind of broadening it just a little yeah. bit. Or at least purely in religious terms. Right. And, and we tend to think of 
rightly or wrongly, in terms of a separation of church and state, which you just don't have at the time of the writing of the Formula of Concord. And and this is the thing. What people forget is, in many ways, to make a religious confession and even liturgical practice at that time is a political statement as well as a religious statement. Right. Yes, you have the two kingdoms, but the, these two kinds of statements are... are very intimately connected. Well, especially because, and we should get into the history of it here, at least in the first segment, because when this whole idea came about and when the uh, the Formula of Concord came about, the whole impetus behind this was this idea of a unity between what we would call the political and the religious realms. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that, you know, we are not doing this just for the sake of order in the church, we're also doing it as a, something with order within society. And it is because of all of the conflicts that are going to happen in the 17th century that we have completely separated those two, which is why we tend to think of this in purely religious terms, as you say. But I think it is something that is much broader than that. Right. And um, and now the chickens have come home to roost, as it were, uh, with regard to governments essentially, depending on your location, telling you what you can do within the service. And this is where the question of adiaphora comes in and liturgics comes in. Because to what degree is our liturgical outlook a reflection of our confession of faith? And and when is it an infringement upon what we confess? When when a government says, for example, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but when the government says, for example, you must distribute, you may not use the chalice to distribute, or we suggest you don't use the chalice to distribute. Right. Okay, that's a that's a liturgical question. Some would argue that the chalice versus individual cups versus those little pre-wrapped shot glass things is is an adiaphorate. And what we're going to see from the formula of Concord is that yes, okay, let's hypothetically say this is adiaphora. I mean, I realize that's a tricky one because the Lord says cup, but for the right. sake of this argument, let's keep it for the sake of this illustration. So the government's going to come in and say you can't use that. The formula of Concord is going to say there are times when you don't give in, even in questions of adiaphora, when it comes to compromising confession or or when the powers that be are trying to force you to change it. Right. And so we, we actually are living in a little bit of that, again, depending upon where you are. So that some of our listeners in certain states are not going to have a good context for this because they've been largely free of this. Others uh, are, are going to be forced more or less by the government and yet others are going to be forced to change their liturgical practices because of local church government. Right. Which is, which is another uh, turn of the screw, as it were. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we want to have this discussion and be... I, I want us to be as clear as we can, to be as fair as we can, and respectful where we can be. But understanding that with the lockdowns, with the compromises that have been made by some that tempers flare over this right and the liturgical changes that are happening today are done under the guise of safety right and that's easy to to kind of move people toward when we have moved away from liturgics as a confession or liturgics as a description of what the church does and so that adiaphora then has not just become things neither forbidden nor commanded, adiaphora, in the minds of many people, is a word that says, do what thou wilt. Right. Shall be the whole of the law. To put the absolute <laughs> most satanic construction I can on that. Uh, I mean, if we're going to go full thelemist here, I mean, right. why not, right? <laughs> That's for esoterica part two. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, but, but, but adiaphora is not do what you want, be as silly as you want, as we'll see from the actual text of the formula of Concord. Right. Which actually speaks against. We're kind of looking at the triglot, but you know, you can say against uh, frivolity in one. Uh, that's in the epitome in one translation, right? Right. Frivolity and offenses are to be avoided, <laughs> which is which is a great way of putting things. But right. I think maybe the the first thing to do here is to actually kind of set up the historical background of yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. of this, uh, because I think that kind of informs how we should understand where this is all coming from. the The most basic. I'm going to give it threadbare kind of background is that this is coming out of 
the uh, Schmalkaldic Wars. Okay, mm-hmm. so you have the, the Schmalkaldic League, who are the Lutherans who are banding together uh, against the, the Holy Roman Emperor. This is a, a war that is going in 1546 to 47, if I remember correctly. Basically, at the end of it, especially at the Battle of Muhlberg in 1547, it ends in a very decisive victory for Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor at that time and a very ardent Roman Catholic. And he, because he won that battle so decisively, institutes what is called the Augsburg Interim. Now, he calls it the Interim because he is looking forward to the coming of what would eventually be the Council of Trent. He's basically saying this is just kind of a, a temporary measure until we get a more formal decision from the church in the future. But basically what he wanted to do was to bring back some kind of stability to his empire, some kind of a, little, a unity of sorts. He institutes the Augsburg Interim, which is very heavily favoring Uh, Roman Catholic practices and saying that, you know, you need to actually do these things. But there are some some concessions made uh, to the Lutheran party, like they could get married and stuff like that. So it was kind of a little bit of a compromise and being a good compromise, it didn't make anybody happy. That's just the way things go. But because of that, what happens is that uh, Philip Melanchthon, who is kind of the, the the leader at this time, and this is where most people kind of hate on Melanchthon, unfortunately, is that he decides that for the sake of unity, for the sake of bringing peace back to the empire, because Luther's dead by this point, he decides that he's going to go along with the interim to accept its terms and to reintroduce some of these things that that Luther and, you know, in former years, they had done away with. How are we doing so far, Will? You want to add anything to it? No, I think I think that that's good. And you're right, uh, Melanchthon is going to be vilified here by many confessional Lutherans. I mean, he's already vilified for the Variata, the um, the altered right. Augsburg Confession, which right. curiously is actually written during Luther's lifetime, right? Well, <laughs> and 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 so then it depends on you know, like, does he just do this all in secret? You know, uh, because we don't have really a record of Luther beating him. Or anything like that, right? So. Right. We'll just we'll leave that juicy little one hanging out there for you to think about. But w- what happens then is that a man by the name of Flacius, Matthias Flacius, goes against this very strongly. He says, "No, this is not what we can do. We cannot compromise in this matter. We have to hold firm." And so basically, you now have a controversy, right? One side is saying it's okay to go along with these things. The other side is saying that, no, we should never go along with these things. And so by the time we get down to the Formula of Concord, the writing of the Formula of Concord in the 1570s, they need to settle this question. Which way are we going to go? How are we going to settle the controversy? And so that's what this is uh, presenting before us today. I think it's fair to say that the formula of Concord is less conciliatory than, say, the Augsburg Confession. Sure. No, I think that's entirely fair. Yeah, and and by this point, you have seen a development in Roman Catholic theology, of course, and Lutheran theology as far as a clarification of positions, and you're starting to see a, a drift. And I know that might make people nervous. But either way, Lutheran, you know, Lutherans would have to agree that by the Council of Trent, there's obviously a theological drift that's happened. Right. Uh, and, right. and a rift, we should say. So the formula of Concord reads a little bit different than other parts of the, of the Book of Concord. I think it was necessary um, in certain ways. It clarifies the Lutheran position. It's very important in, the ca- in cases like antinomianism and things like that. You know, that's where when you get people who are kind of Lutheran light, or or whatever, you'll notice that they don't lean heavily on the formula. They they want to go to the Augsburg Confession or just the small catechism. And those things are not deficient by any means. It's just that they are not as fully fleshed out as certain parts of the formula of Concord because their historical context is not doesn't demand that in the way the formula of Concord does. I can't help but feel a you know a very subtle attack against my Scandinavian heritage here. That's right. That's right. Um, all you pietist Norwegians with just your subscribing to one or two things, get on the Germans' level and subscribe to it all. 
Exactly. Well, and I think you make a good point, too, because what is happening here, especially by the time we get down to the compiling of the Book of Concord, you know, in 1580, you have the very beginning of early Lutheran orthodoxy, a, a period in which you're going to be very concerned with this kind of careful distinction, this very, this very careful definition. And so what has come from the Augsburg Confession and its definitions, which were careful too, I mean, don't get me wrong, has now started to give way to a new movement within Lutheranism, which is going to go on for the next 150 years. So Yes, and it's very much more, I mean, to, to call it scholastic is a little bit misleading, because when we mean scholastic here, we we intend to say a much more academic approach. It's probably more fair to call it a more humanist approach sure. as far as how it's organized. Because Luther is probably the last medieval scholastic. That's what the term scholastic is supposed to mean. Not right. academic. Not <laughs> merely academic as we use the word today. So there has been a, a shift in how theology is approached and how theology is done between Luther and the age of orthodoxy. Right. That's just a historical fact. That's not saying anybody's wrong or any methodology is wrong. It's just to say that exegesis is done differently to a point. I mean, that's just the way right. it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the organization of theology, this systematics and things like that. Well, especially because, um, I, I guess we're getting a little off topic, but especially because, you know, we have this coming rift, as you said, which is going to eventually be fully formed at Trent when you have the full-fledged anathemas. The Lutherans are basically forced to define themselves very carefully so that they can explain their position over and against uh, Roman Catholicism and eventually also over and against other Protestant movements. Well, and even uh, over and against other Lutheran movements, right? Right. Because you're going to have the Philippus versus the Gnasios and things like that on, on, on down through today. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to say that all Lutherans agree on everything today and that I... we have gotten over that. <laughs> As we're going to see in this episode about Adiaphora. <laughs> right, exactly. Some things never change. But I mean, it's, and it's also, so to do that, they kind of begin to borrow the more scholastic, quote-unquote, method, which is kind of a reintroduction of um, Aristotelian distinctions, that just kind of way of organizing things, you know, points, subpoints, you know, that, that careful kind of laying everything out very systematically, which can be very, very useful. It can be very, very clear. But it is certainly the movement which this is moving towards and and what we're going to find as we dig into uh, the formula here in this episode. Right. And again, we're going to be focusing on uh, Formula of Concord Epitome, Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, Article 10 of both. So Article 10 Church Rights and Article 10 Adiaphora. Right. Because right. they're both. And that's primarily what Adiaphora is going to concern, uh, the rights, R-I-T-E-S, the rights of the church. So church practices, liturgical practices, which is Zellin's favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> or something. <laughs> well, and it, because the controversy was mostly focused around that very issue, right? Because uh, Charles was demanding a, a uniformity within religious rights, a return of, you know, the seven sacraments of Roman Catholic theology, you know, all these kinds of things. So it was very much a right focused uh, interim. And so that's why the controversy is surrounding that question. But as I think we'll go to find on here in the rest of this, it does have further implications because of the historical context that it was born in. Well, on the other side of the break, then we're going to talk a little bit about what a confessional Lutheran church looks like in the context of the confessions, and probably more toward the end of it, we're going to talk about the governmental applications, if indeed there are any. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about Formula of Concord and Adi Opera. Well, we, we kind of set up everything uh, well there. I think people know where we're heading into this discussion. So now let's talk a little bit about liturgics then, which is what these two articles concern and what that means for us and what Adi Opera doesn't mean. So Zellwin, talk a little bit about that. <laughs> Just go is what you're saying. Just go, right? yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, I think I think the first thing to emphasize here is that adiaphora stems from, like you say, a recognition that thing, these things are neither commanded nor forbidden. So things that we have inherited from our religious heritage, um, you know, the, the 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 rites of the Western Church and the the the, the things that come along with that. The Lutheran, we as Lutherans are basically saying that, yes, these are good things. These are things that we do not have to get rid of. But they're also recognizing that they're not something that are explicitly commanded in the scriptures either. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that's fair because you right. have you have like in, in the epitome, Article 10, the firm statement one. It says very specifically that for settling this controversy, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that some ceremonies or church practices are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but have been introduced only for the sake of fitting and good order. Such rites are not in and of themselves divine worship. They're not even part of it. Matthew 15, 9 says, In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So the reason why we retain these things then, the formula is saying, is for the sake of good order. But they're not something that we are like obligated to to keep in that way. Does that make sense? Right. And also, uh, not only for good order, but for the sake of the conscience of those. Right. Which is what's, which is what's going to come out in the solid declaration. Right. Uh, with a good conscience of the weakened faith and such external adiaphora, how can we yield? And so he goes, Paul's example in Romans 14, things like that. He's going to continue, or excuse me, the authors are going to continue on into the we believe, teach, and confess that the time of confession, when a confession of the heavenly truth was acquired, when the enemies of God's word desire to suppress the pure doctrine of the Holy Gospel, the entire congregation, yea, every Christian, but especially the ministers of the word, as the leaders of the congregation of God, are bound by God's word to confess freely and openly the godly doctrine and what belongs to the whole of pure religion, not only in words, but in works and deed so on and so forth, they must not yield to the adversaries or permit these adiaphora to be forced upon them by their enemies. Okay, right. so that's going to be the big one. That's kind of where people begin with this, is that, well, we can't have something forced upon us. And yet, there is also the principle that in times of public confession, uh, that we can yield. Right. So uh, the negative theses, for example, in the epitome, Accordingly, we, re- we reject and condemn as wrong and contrary to God's word when it's taught, and it goes through several of them, and then it goes to also that in the time of persecution and public confession, when a clear confession is required, we may yield to the enemies of the gospel in such adiaphora and ceremonies, or may come to an agreement with them, which causes injury to the truth. Again, context here, the historical context is extra ceremonies being forced on, not necessarily ceremonies being stripped from them. Right. And yet... The opposite would apply, right? Okay, now, although these are neither commanded nor forbidden, if if your liturgical practice is confessing something about the faith, and it is going to destroy consciences to remove it, and it will be a detriment to the church to remove it, then it would be sin to to allow some outside force to take that away. What the formula of Concord seems more concerned about is two things— it is, namely, uh, that Rome not be able to force things upon us and that local custom be honored. Right. And, I mean, it even says local custom in there. So, right. again, though, we're talking about a time where worship, either way you're cutting it, in the Lutheran church is broadly liturgical. Right. Okay, right. so so it's it's urging a sober approach to liturgics, not binding people's consciences, However, the description of the Lutheran Church that we have in the Formula of Concord, but also throughout the entire Book of Concord, is what? It is a liturgical church. Okay, right. our, ter- our churches teach that those rites should be observed, which can be observed without sin, and which contribute to peace and good order in the church, should. The chief purposes of all ceremonies is to teach the people what they need to know about Christ. 
Okay, both of those are from the Augsburg Confession. Of the Apology, you know, the Mass is celebrated every Sunday and other festivals, the sacrament offered. Apology, again, Holy Fathers Institute of Traditions for Good Order. Large Catechism, Luther talks about no one creating disorder by unnecessary innovation. And even here, in the Formula of Concord, what do we find? That you can't just be introducing anything that you want. So that today, what we deal with, by and large, is not a Roman Catholic Church or a state church seeking to force extra-liturgical practices on us. It is some other kind of force that is trying to strip historic liturgical practices from us. Absolutely. And I think, and I think, when, and, and that's the way that Adiaphora has shifted in our times, and that's something yes. we should talk about. I do want to point out here, especially like in the epitome again, point three says that all frivolity and offense should be avoided in this matter. Yes. You know, that there is a sense in which we are not doing this to say, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to do and, it. And that's specifically regarding a change in ceremony. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, I can't. I can't just give it up just because I want to, because that would cause offense to someone else. Right, and I can't just make something up and put it in there because I want to either. Right, because that would and, potentially cause offense again. <laughs> right, and, and we see a lot of this. And yes, this primarily deals with external forms, but external forms do express what we believe. Right, and so that we want to strive toward great uniformity with a reasonable respect of local custom. And again, when they're talking about local custom, I don't think that, like, they're, they're, they're more talking about, like, gospel processions or no gospel processions, right? <laughs> it's, it's not um, baptizing at a historic font versus baptizing in a cattle trough or something like that. Right. Now, at this point, somebody's going to go, well, are you, are you accusing people of sin who baptize in cattle troughs? No. However, I do want to say something about that, if, if I may. Go for it. <laughs> yes, it's a baptism. But I think you can argue that a lot of modern big box church baptisms have really gone into frivolity and excess here. And I mean, good for the farm stores that people are being, that they're selling all these troughs. But <laughs> so here's the thing about this though. If we practice historic Lutheran liturgical norms, okay, and forms. So we practice that. Now that will not guarantee that we confess everything the same although it should, but outwardly it gives the idea that all of these churches together, the pastors are wearing the same vestments, they're using the same liturgy, they're using the same lectionary. Methinks, perhaps, they believe the same thing. Now, if you, as a Lutheran church, have adopted forms and norms that do not look Lutheran, but you're, it's okay, so you're baptizing in the cattle trough, right? Or you've got a big water slide going down into a pool, and maybe you say the the divine name as it goes down or, or the triune name as it goes down or something like that. But, you know, once one church, once one big box church started doing that, all the other ones started doing it. We see that in cycles. Well, somebody's going to go to your church, you know, St. Swiggins Lutheran, and you're baptizing like this and you're in t-shirts and you're putting it in, in cattle troughs or whatever. Are they, and they're going to see the evangelical church across the street doing the same thing. And they're going to see the Baptist church over here doing the same thing. And what are they going to assume? That they're doing the same thing. That you all believe the same thing. Right, right. So that's how external forms can either, you know, affirm or deny our confession. Somebody could make, again, make the case that, well, it's still a baptism. I'm not saying it's not a baptism, but I'm saying it doesn't readily look Lutheran, and it does sort of divorce you from the Lutheran norm and from, you know, the from what it has historically meant to be Lutheran. Sure. Now, when you, when you look at the confessions, and we've given you know a, a few examples here of us maintaining uh, the traditions, because the especially the Augsburg Confession and the, and the Apology are very very careful to say we are not deviating uh, from historic practices. So what that says is that the Lutheran Church at the time of the drafting of these confessions looks like this, mm-hmm. and some would go, well, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Well. At a certain point, it's a kind of a distinction without a difference, right? Yeah, it doesn't say you have to use this exact setting, but it does say this is what the Lutheran church looks like. And I think that that says a lot. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, that, I, that, again, the whole point is is not to say that adiaphora means you can do what you want. You do have Christian freedom to do it, but Christian freedom must think of the other brother and the larger consequences of your actions. Now, the people who want to deviate from this, what are they going to say? Well, we reach more people doing this. 
okay, but that's okay. still I've seen I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of bad things done in the name of the Lord with that excuse. Sure. A lot of bad things, you know. Well, if it saves just one person, we should build a football stadium. You know. I'm not even joking. That's yeah. an actual example from life. I'll tell you all the story about that someday. But I've seen this over and over again. This um a desire to want to innovate you with a with a rather pious excuse. And I do think that some people are are sincere in this. And yet there's also this idea of we want to be big for the sake of being big. We want to give the appearance that we're dynamic and new and novel. I I don't think that that's the way to build a church that lasts. Sure. I kind of want to hear story time with Willie, though. It's kind of fun. But, right. <laughs> but let me throw this at you then, Willie. It's something that we need to consider. I mean, I'm totally on board with everything that you're saying, but we did see throughout the, the course of Lutheran history, up until fairly recently, a a movement towards a different kind of liturgicalness. I don't I don't know what word to use. You know, we have the introduction, for example, of the Talar and Bethkin, uh, mm-hmm. which is not which is not a Geneva preaching gown. It's different. Sure. You, know, yeah. you have you have the roughs up in Norwegian countries or Norwegian Scandinavian countries. So, I mean, there is a definite movement away from certain liturgical practices over the centuries. Yeah. And, Some, and we have to admit that we do end up seeing the Geneva gown in certain areas. Sure. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. And actually, but, most of our LCMS people who are listening, the, if your churches are old enough, and really, even in living memory of a lot of people, your pastor was probably wearing a Geneva gown. Oh yeah, I've I've seen them in the closets of some of the churches I've been around here, and these yeah. churches are not a hundred, you know, maybe a hundred years old. So right. it's absolutely within living memory of some of the members. But there has been a decided movement towards, let's say, the the, the liturgical movement, a, a reintroduction of certain practices into Lutheranism. Yes. What do we make of that? Okay. There's a couple ways that you can sort of tackle this. And let's just take the Geneva gown as an example. Okay. It is a Reformation era statement because at a certain point, pastors begin to wear academic attire. Right. So the Geneva gown, even though it becomes associated with a preaching vestment, it's not really. It's an academic vestment. Now, you would have a scarf, like the tippet you would wear, which would be the preaching scarf. That would right. be your closer closer thing to investment, depending on where you are. But yeah, there there is a historical curiosity where academic gowns become favored. Now, who do you blame for that? We have plenty of pictures of Luther dressed in this way, but we also right. have many pictures of Calvin. And some people would say, well, it's a reformed thing. It's called the Geneva gown, right? <laughs> uh, right, right. But you know, you can you can begin to see this even in Lutheranism pretty early on. And that might be a Melanchthonian influence too, but it's mostly just a humanist influence. Now that I've thoroughly bored everyone, I'll get to answer your question. <laughs> the Toller and Befkin, for example. Yeah, these become the liturgical norm of dress in those regions. We can't say it's a sin because it's not commanded in Scripture. So what we have to look at now is the historical reasons why this came to be, and then ask, are there any good reasons why we would repristinate? That's not really the word. Recover the historic church vestments. I think moving away from perhaps the divine service as an academic exercise is probably a good thing. Purely academic. I mean, it is catechetical, but you know what I mean. Right, 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 right. Um, recovering a sense of catholicity is good. Uh, recovering a sense that the Lutheran church is the historic church. So recovering the vestments attaches us to that, to the legacy church. If you want to go with the fact that all the liturgical vestments and really all, I mean, even a lot of the architecture and other things, but let's just talk about the vestments. They take on a catechetical meaning or a spiritual meaning later on. You can make that case. So there are many ways that you can tackle this. Are you saying like that they're being spiritualized in making something catechetical out of them? Or are you saying that they actually do have legitimate? They come to have legitimate catechetical things, but that's just a fact. The maniple starts out as a napkin, for example, right? Right. The chasuble is a tunic. Uh, They start out as much more practical and then take on a significance. Not unlike the clerical collar, you know, it, it, uh, it's a detachable collar. It ends up basically getting put on backwards and then, uh, it, it becomes associated with ministers. I'm giving a very quick overview of that. 
And then you get to the point where now people are explaining that the reason why it's white and black has to do with sin and forgiveness. But it really just, but it really just started out with that's the color, that you know, for, color, for example, yeah. Yeah, referring to the detachable <laughs> color, you know? So, but I don't think it's a, it's a bad thing that these, that this gets a meaning attached to it. And that's why they get retained as fashions change. The church is not fashionable. So, I think it's a very good thing to see it this way because, okay, yeah, maniple starts out as a napkin or whatever. Tunic starts out as this. And then the church is out of step with time. And right. so what was initially just a very utilitarian garment takes on a greater meaning as it's seen as a a uniform of the church, right? Or, right. or a, a liturgical vestment to wear. Okay, you know that we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. Why? Well, he's wearing what becomes to be known as the chasuble now for example, or the stole or anything. So to me, that actually makes a stronger case because the church began to be to associate certain things, certain garments liturgically or certain, you know, pieces of cloth and things like that. So to me, that's a good thing that the church kind of is not in step with fashion and that the church attaches significance. It gives significance to things in a good way. And I, and yeah, I'm right on board with you there. I mean, it is certainly something that sets apart what we are doing. And for that reason, it is something that we, you know, can recover. But I think you're asking me, I mean, your question was really, is grandpa sinning because he wore a Geneva gown when he was pastor in 1945? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, Of course not. You you can't (laughs) accuse, you can't invent sins. Right. Was, was, was wham sinning when he preached in a suit, basically. Right. Of course not, and and I, and I don't and I won't demonize those guys for for that sort of thing. That seems unfair to me. That's not honoring my fathers, and that was the uh, basically what was um, assumed at the time. Yes, it, it is true that in the Missouri Synod, you you would always have some churches using chasubles or wearing cassock and surplices, but for a long time that was not the norm, right? Right, right. I oh, mean, absolutely. It, yeah, and so today I would argue that it, it's flipped. And that's sort of the dangerous place that we put ourselves, right? Uh, we don't want to just be kind of going back and forth, this kind of pendulum swing one way or the other. Uh, we need to be careful of that. So that's where I think maintaining these historic liturgical norms is much more safe because it has the historical, a longer historical precedent. Sure. But I mean, even if you find, let's say, holdovers of that that movement away from, let's say, the, the Western vestments you know, of, of the church, to more of the uh, Talar and Bafkin, to more of a, I don't, you know, that that look, and, and even towards the suit and ties of the early 1900s, I think that that's not something that is like a degeneration of what is happening. Well, no, I mean, look, look, I, I got called a pietist for wearing a white suit once. You know, you're not going to, and it, it wasn't even totally white, it was uh, more of a off-white ivory. But uh, anyway, my point is, people are going to, demonize whoever for whatever thing external. And that wasn't even in the divine service, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't dress like that for the service, but right. Right. We have to be careful that we have enough real sins. We don't need to manufacture them. But the question though, the question is, is there ever a point where liturgical innovation does become sin? And I think, yes, I think when it begins to scandalize people and to prick consciences, it becomes sin. I think when it identifies us with the world, or with confessions other than our own, like the illustration I mentioned, I think you're, it's very dangerous there because it runs the risk of, of being a false confession. Right, right. That, that would be, you know, my big concern. Could, could uh, and maybe I'll ask the, the really bombshell question here, could the recovery of the historic forms in itself be an innovation? Well, so in the Missouri Synod, it's kind of a fact that the liturgical renewal was led by people who in many ways denied the historic confession of the faith. Right. Right. So that for a lot of people of a certain generation, the Missouri Synod, they see quote unquote high church to borrow from the Anglicans, high church stuff as uh, associated with liberalism, even though arguably that is certainly flipped today. It's the other way around now. Right. Although there, there are examples of the opposite. You know, anything I say here, somebody's going to pull out some, you know, church in some, <laughs> you know, city of a certain direction on the map. And, you know, so anyway, sorry, ask the question again to make sure I get it. 
Well, I'm just saying, you know, if in the process of recovering this, these historical forms, is there a point in which we are doing this for good order? And is there a point in which it becomes yeah. purely innovation? Right. Well, we need to be careful that we're not doing it just out of preference, right? I like it. I think it's pretty. Okay, that's one thing. Or you're looking at uh, the pastor who came before you who was just in an alb and a stole, which I recognize is basically the undergarment. <laughs> uh, right, I understand right. that. But but to say that this guy was the devil because of that, we need to be very careful with those attitudes. I believe very firmly that there is a better way of doing things and that this better way has great spiritual benefits. But I can't consign someone to outer darkness because they forgot to cross their stole under their chasuble. But don't do that, by the way. Remember, you cross it under your chasuble, guys. Don't forget. <laughs> That's when it's acceptable to put the cincture around it. You know, or or you'll occasionally see people that'll be like, "Well, he's not wearing a chasuble, so it's an invalid mass." And mo- usually, people say that kind of tongue in cheek. But I have met uh, Lutherans, uh, not ordained, but I have met uh, lay Lutherans who would who would believe that that the the Lord's Supper is not valid if the right vestment isn't worn. And at that point, you really have confused uh, something there. <laughs> right. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there's there's definitely a problem yeah. there. That needs well, what to about affect. you? What are, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, no, I'm, I mean, I wear a chasuble on Sunday morning. Okay, so don't don't take anything what I'm saying here as in the wrong way. I'm just, we have to recognize that, yes, there are, there are great benefits to what we are you know, reintroducing into the church, we just have to recognize that in many cases, especially in very rural parishes, it is an introduction. They have never now, seen these things before. Right. And, well, and, you know, speaking of the rural urban dynamic, that was also true even at the time of the Reformation. Right. That you had grander services and grander liturgical things in large parishes, uh, more, you know, more so compared to smaller parishes. So you'd have a larger church in an urban area versus a rural, you know, hypothetically you're less likely to see a lot of flourishes in those smaller parishes. They just couldn't afford it or didn't have the people. Yeah, absolutely. So there's always been a variation. I mean, there's, (laughs) you know, know, uniformity does not, is not meant to imply that everything is is a hundred percent the same, even though that sounds weird to say, right. But we strive for uniformity, you know, within these certain parameters here, understanding as the formula does that there is room for, for local custom. And I, and I think that that's best expressed, say, in local feast days and things like that. Sure. Um, so, although we, we we largely don't have local feasts up there, I I it'd be it'd be kind of nice to to actually connect in in that way and actually you know reintroduce some local feasts like you know the founding of the church or something like that or oh I was thinking yeah, that, yeah right I but I was thinking more like the dog headed saints. Well, I know like you're that. you're thinking of like actual <laughs> saints days. I'm thinking <laughs> right, more right. like historical commemorations so right but either way both would be very edifying i think absolutely we should do an episode on the dog people though (laughs) and giants do you guys want to hear an episode about the giants and and dog people let us know in the comments but we've got to take a break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi here talking about adiaphora, what that means for the church. Well, just to finish up one small point uh, from the last segment, I do want to read uh, from the last uh, segment here, the Solid Declaration, Article 10 on adiaphora. Thus, according to this doctrine, the church will not condemn one another because of dissimilarity of ceremonies when in Christian liberty one has less or more of them, provided they are otherwise agreed with one another in the doctrine and all its articles, also in the right use of the holy sacraments, according to the well-known saying, 
Disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in the faith. So that we want to be clear here that you do have Christian liberty, but again, think of the context in which this is written. We are not talking about these huge disparities in practice, and there are certainly no huge disparities in doctrine here that, that to be implied. Right. So that this cannot be construed to say that do what you want, you can look completely different from the historic church. I don't think that the authors had that in mind at all. I don't think they could have conceived of that. You know, when we say worship is faith, it's true, but that doesn't mean that we can then do whatever we want, right? It's it, no more than saying we're justified by faith means we can live evil lives, right. for example. Right. And and so here, you know, what we usually hear is, you know, you can't condemn us because we have a dissimilarity in ceremony. Well, we're not. We've gone through great pains to respect, especially like, say, our Geneva gown wearing forefathers. And yet we would take great issue with those who completely destroy the liturgy because it really does give the appearance of destroying the confession of faith. Well, because even even our Geneva gown wearing forefathers were still following the common service. We're right? still following the common service. Yes. Baptism looked the same. The Lord's Supper looked the same. Right, the table was fenced. The gospel was preached. The sacraments rightly administered. Your outward worship is a reflection of your inward confession. Whether whether you want to believe that or not, whether you, whether you believe the two are separate or not, it doesn't change that reality. And so again, the the confessions give us a description of the church, and it, it, it's kind of like saying, well, we can't, you know, the Book of Acts is just history, not prescriptive. Okay, so you're not going to follow the examples of the apostles now? <laughs> but what does that mean? I mean, we, we have a lot of copes that I don't understand. So so I don't want people to say that or to come away thinking that the formula of Concord is giving permission for people to do whatever they want. If you read it in its context, read it in its entirety, that's not what you come away with. Sure. I think that's fair. But now we want to get into... Um, the listener question about the secular implications of this, of Adiaphora. And am I doing justice to the question, this is kind of paraphrase it to say, can the government tell us what to do liturgically? I think that's fair. I mean, because the question was was formulated, and especially with the shutdowns in mind, you know, the government basically telling churches they could not worship, that sort of thing. And that's certainly a, a liturgical statement. I mean, to say that, you know, you can't do this in your service or maybe you can't even worship at all. Yeah. And it's been interesting to see this debate go out because it's usually talked about in a broader context, right? Masking in general, mandatory vaccines in general, which, by the way, um, the church should not be supporting uh, force force uh, jabbing anyone. I just want to go on the record there, like that we even have to have this conversation, Uh, (laughs) you know, it's been a good run, Willie. <laughs> yeah, we are now. Well, I mean, it is it is strange to me. Like so, like the masks. Let's, let's start with the masks. I've seen confessional pastors argue that we should obey the mask mandate. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine, do what you want. But then I've also seen other Lutheran pastors go even further and and laud mandatory vaccination. You know, ma- ma- you know, uh, completely discounting. Any arguments based upon safety or aborted cell use or anything like that to just come out and say there's no religious reason uh, that someone could object to this. Well, now they're the judge of everyone's conscience. Very dangerous, very dangerous water to tread. But all of this is wrapped up in this in this listener's question of, okay, so there's going to be this battle over the broader societal question. And you could probably guess where the word fitly crew stands on it pretty easily. But then. Okay, so you've got pastors over here saying, you know, you must do this. Pastors over here saying you must disobey this. Well, what about when the government has now stepped foot in your chancels? What do you do? Are you going to make the same argument? Right. Are you going to make, does the government have the authority? And this is a question of, you know, even outside of Romans 13, because it becomes very tricky because of our uh, form of government, right? It becomes, it becomes a little more complicated. If we had a dictator a legal dictator, I guess it would be an easier one, <laughs> but we don't. And we have states and they have governments and on and on and on. So I don't really want to get into that. But the question is, at what point can the church say, no, 
This is not your authority. You cannot tell us how we can minister the sacrament. You may not tell us how we will, who we can permit into our facilities. And, and this is kind of, this is a theological question, not a legal question. So like when the ADL comes out and says, um, or was it the, wait, not the ADL. Um, the, uh, that's the anti-Semitism one. Uh, oh, what's the the alliance defending uh, uh, freedom? Uh, oh, ADF. The ADF. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is friendlier to this podcast. <laughs> but when they come out and go for the pur- so like for Illinois, for example, they go for the purposes of this X mandate. The uh, church is not considered a uh, private entity, right? Well, who are you to say that? The sanctuary is not public property and it's not right. public anyway what's the historic practice for uh for the for the lord's supper Zelwyn? in in the ancient church how uh public was the reception of the lord's supper uh let's go with not <laughs> no, yeah everybody who was not admitted to the altar was ushered out and the doors were closed so let, th- let me let me put it this way when ambrose can expel theodosius because of his unrepentant sin i'd i'd wager to say this is not you know, a public affair. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> so right there, we have some very interesting precedents. So the theological argument, then again, we have to say, I want to separate this from the public at large. So people are trying to make a Romans 13 argument over wearing or not wearing a mask at Walmart, whatever that that's a discussion for another time. Let's talk about in the church. Uh, and I'd say maybe just to make sure we're absolutely clear where we're coming from on this. I do want to emphasize that I think that what Adiaphor applies here because of the situation in which it was formulated. Again, yes. you, you had an yes. emperor telling you, you have to do this. That's basically where this comes into effect. Absolutely. And so, so now you have a governor or whomever coming in and saying, well, you need to, and this happened very in the, in the two weeks to flatten the curve. Do you remember this? Uh, where a lot of what, states a year and a half ago, where a lot of state governors were saying, if you must have celebrate the Lord's Supper, then do it this way. Right. This is our now. In most cases, it was guidance, which you can roll your eyes at and do whatever you want. Right. And I'm and again, this is not this is not a podcast right now where I want to where I'm going to come down and go. X church was sinning because they took this measure. That's not the purpose of the discussion. The purpose of the discussion is. Is it proper for the government to do this? And is it proper for the church to resist? That's the question. Or even in, in to put it on the other side, is it proper for the church to go along with it? Bingo. Yeah. yeah you know. and, and, you know, and so I think that we made a grave mistake in shutting down uh, at all. I think that, but I know that we did. I shouldn't even say I think. I absolutely know that we shouldn't have done it. I understand why churches did it out of, we hope, I hope it was out of sincere concern for members and not sincere concern for tax-exempt status. And I've not really seen that to be the case, to be fair. And yet, it's gone on long enough. You've seen inconsistencies. Lollapalooza can go on. Sports can meet. Right? right. Liquor stores can stay open. But, but, you, can't, but you can't go get uh, you know, your cancer screenings. We live in clown world now. So now that we're in clown world, what is the church supposed to do? <laughs> Adiaphora in clown world has got to be the title of this episode. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it really does come down to, because I mean, think even about what the government is basically saying to the churches in many cases and that what they've been saying, especially when the lockdowns were in full force. I know that we might be getting into a period where they might be coming back. If they are insisting that you cannot gather together as the body of Christ because you are a threat or because you are non-essential or something like that, you've heard all that language. What is that saying about what we are doing as the church? If the government can tell you gathering on Sunday morning is something you don't need to do. And and worse than that, or even further than that, receiving the Lord's body and blood is something you don't need to do. Right. So I think we absolutely have to stand up and say no. This is something right. where we must, <laughs> for the sake of, of a state of confession, to put it in the language of the of the confessions, we have to say, no, we are going to continue doing this. Right. There were churches shutting down, not doing baptisms. What does that do? Do you get a mulligan for that one? Sorry, <laughs> Lord. Uh, we were in lockdown. 
<laughs> couldn't couldn't give give you this means of grace to this person. A terrifying thing to have to answer for. Yeah. And, and and it's like an excuse for anything. We go, well, God, God's cool. God will get over it. I don't know. I don't know that that's really what we've found throughout this. We need to do some very deep soul searching. And I, and I say this in, in all humility. We need to do some serious soul searching about what we have allowed. And America, some states have been very, very strict. I mean, basically draconian. Other states have been very free. I think we can be happy that we're not Australia. Amen. <laughs> at this point, but we could always get there. You're only ever one day away. You're only ever one stroke of a pen away from getting there. Christian liberty is for the sake of serving neighbor. Okay. And any religious liberty that we have, even secular religious liberty in the Lord's providence is meant for the spreading of the gospel. Right. You know, right. and so that's the only way we can see it is used. So when we have liberty, we must use it. But we must never allow our lack of liberty to hamper our preaching of the gospel. And now we've seen that we must not let it hamper our administration of the sacraments either. And so it is a liturgical matter. It's a matter of adiaphora how many people you have in your church. It is a matter of adiaphora whether you mask in your church or not. And yet it isn't in this context, is it? Because when you are limiting people who can come, when you are dehumanizing the people who are there, what does that mean? Again, we would never demonize someone wearing this mask coming into church, although depending on the mask, right? <laughs> uh, or something like that. Like Again, that's not the point because everybody's so charged with this. We're simply saying that once you have put an obstacle in someone's way, once you have made a law that the Lord didn't institute, and that is a barrier for them getting to church, now you've crossed over a line there, right? Right, yeah. Now, some would say, well, well, what if not masking is a barrier? Well, that's different, though, because we didn't mask before. The nor it's not normal for people to cover their faces outside of certain Middle Eastern countries or, or clan meetings. <laughs> but <laughs> or, or just, you know, or in certain <laughs> contexts, you know, we, that we did see previous to this, you know, especially maybe like in certain places and hospitals. So, you know, it's not unheard of. No, but, but it's not the norm. But, but it's but, certainly by no means the norm. Yeah, absolutely not. And and so what you're doing is, okay, so I'm going to not give this person the Lord's Supper because they're not wearing rubber gloves or whatever. And you're going to go, well, I'm actually denying them because they're not loving their neighbor. No, you're not. You're denying it because they're not, they're not following this arbitrary rule, which we have to see as arbitrary now. Right. Because it's only enforced as far as churches goes or apparently small businesses. Yeah, it's just... Clown world, as you said. Clown right. shoes and again, all the way down. I'm using these examples that don't invalidate the service, and yet they do disrupt the service. They, they put wedges between people, and they create obstacles where the Lord doesn't put obstacles. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you're talking about countries where, like Canada, for example, pastor being in prison for holding services. I mean, I, I was just reading about, like, pastors, you know, before the Reformation, like in Czechoslovakia, where they're, like, storming churches so that they can celebrate communion, you know, because they've been right. forbidden to do so. Yeah. You know, wh what happened to that to that spirit? Well, there was no, there, there as you know, uh, in that period in history, there were no mass public health issues. <laughs> they had no plagues. They didn't yeah. have any, they didn't have COVID, you know, 14... 67 or whatever it was. And see, I think that that's, this is the spiritual danger here, is that those who would put these obstacles up are doing so because they believe they're committing a moral good. Right. And they believe that the person on the other side is trying to kill everyone. Well, and even, I mean, you got to think of it, the government approaching these questions too, the government is doing it because it believes itself to be in the right here. Correct. I mean, well, yeah, that's a very good construction you've put on that. I'm 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 keeping the commandments today. So, you know, because it believes itself to be doing the right thing. Now, we obviously would argue very strenuously against that. And um, but I mean, the, the point is, is, I mean, and even I think this was Lewis, wasn't it? That when you have a, a, a tyrant who believes he's doing something that is morally upstanding, yeah. he will not stop to do it. You know, a, ty a regular tyrant gets tired after a while. Right. The one who's belie who believes that he's doing something morally righteous is going to keep sure. doing it. And I, I believe that that's, that that's true in, in the main. 
because some of this is outside the scope of this episode, we'll have to save it for like revelation <laughs> when we talk about it. Uh, it is, it is a very dangerous thing spiritually to capitulate to everything without any discernment. And I believe we are sorely lacking in discernment here. And our risk assessment is a little bit off because you have people who have, for the sake of temporal safety, have not attended church, have not heard the word preached, have not received the sacrament in well over a year and a half. Now, when you do risk assessment, you could say, okay, my chances of catching something are less, but also the chance of losing your soul has increased. So we have to think about what that risk assessment is, you know, what or what the real risk is. And I hate to put it in, in stark terms like that. And I know that we're supposed to be more winsome than we are, but I think we've we've kind of gone beyond the point of that because the two camps are kind of entrenched at this point. Right. And it, it was very easy to, to turn people against their neighbors and to demonize an entire class of people. I can assure you the people who just want to go to church don't want to make you sick. Right. They don't want to do you harm. Well, yeah, no, I mean, and I think, I think you put it very well there. You know, it's not that they are, we, we we have become so entrenched against one another I, intentionally, I would say. That's getting that Revelation episode in there again. <laughs> right. But, you know, that we have Everything been... we're talking about is a type of, not the. We'll put it that way. <laughs> but the, the fact that we are being divided against one another because of these things also shows that, you know, for the sake of good order, for the sake of Christian conscience, we do have to say... You know, this is what we need to do. Well, I'm going to say, this is where the guy is going to come in with a checkmate and go, okay, then, if it's Adiaphora, wear the mask, take the shot, and accept the restrictions, because you can still pretty much have a service with all these restrictions in. What do you say? Can you, though? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's just... Because if because with with that comes along, you know, all these things that basically I have to listen to whatever the government is going to tell me to do with this service, something that's going to be shifting constantly in some states, you know, they have their their tears or whatever. So now do I have to say to the, the, the dear pious lady who has come to church? No, you can't come in because we have our 10. You can't use the common cup, even though there's virtually no danger there even though it's the Lord's institution because it could be a vector for germs because Jesus didn't understand germ theory. Apparently this is a, this is a, are you trying to say Jesus Christ couldn't hit a curveball situation <laughs> it, it, to me that, that goes beyond, you know, now you now you are messing with the Lord's institution there. Yeah. And I mean, and think of how just in historical terms, how churches approached these same situations. Cause this is not the only disease problem in history. I mean, right. we have had massive pandemics. I mean, you could even think of, say, like the Black Death in the 13th century. Right. Killing millions, literally killing millions. You know, and do churches say, oh, I guess, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? No, they right. continue right. proclaiming the gospel. They and continue holding services. Absolutely. And at this point, someone's going to go, well, during the uh, Spanish flu... Uh, churches shut down in St. Louis. True. Not for a year. Yeah. You might close. Okay. <laughs> we'll give you a couple weeks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and our churches have given that and more in this, in this new one. Again, very delicate subject, but I think ultimately very clear. And then we would come down and to kind of too long didn't read answer the question. I believe there is a time where the church says, no, we must do things in a certain way. And, and, and Caesar may not dictate that. Oh, man. I mean, if, if if they want to say we have to have a handicap ramp, you know, in our new church building or whatever, Fine. I'll live with that. Apologies to Ron Paul, but I guess I can live with that. But once <laughs> you've begun dictating how the service must go, now now I believe that we're crossing a line. We're step, we, we are mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. If the government's telling you you can't sing, you can't have communion, you can't have any of these things, I think the church just has to say, we've we've weathered worse. We're going to keep on keeping on, and the and the and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, Zelwyn, any any last words then on this uh, circuitous discussion of Adiaphora? No, I, I I hope it was a beneficial thing for everyone involved. I mean, it is like you say, a delicate subject in many cases, but it is something that we do need to talk about because 
unfortunately we live in clown world and that isn't going away anytime soon. So even in the midst of clown shoes, as it were, we still have to proclaim the gospel. We can't give that up. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you and God bless. Thus, according to this doctrine, the churches will not condemn one another because of dissimilarity of ceremonies, when in Christian liberty one has less or more of them, provided they are otherwise agreed with one another in the doctrine and all its articles, also in the right use of the holy sacraments, according to the well-known saying, disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in the faith.